This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Today I'm speaking with Orit Halpern, Lighthouse Professor and Chair of Digital Cultures and Societal Change at Technische Universität Dresden. We were discussing Orit's recently published book, The Smartness Mandate, with Robert Mitchell. The Smartness Mandate examines the proliferation of a new type of logic that emphasizes the integration of computation and artificial intelligence into the fabric of everyday life. Orit, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for the invitation, Caleb. Of course. Uh, you know, uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so um, I obviously am a media studies scholar, but uh, I was trained in history of science. Um, so actually, I'm a historian of science, and I like to think about uh, the relationship between technology and society and how models of technology uh, reflect and refract our ideas, both of society and of uh, the human, uh, whatever that is, and scarecrows, of course. But also, I really like to think about the future of technology and how the stories and narratives we tell about technologies in our present uh, really impact the way we build technology in the future. And so I'm really, really concerned with the technical imaginary, if we will. And particularly right now, we kind of live in an age that we sort of, uh, we often assume crisis is a given. So it's particularly important that as we're thinking about uh, climate change, the kind of many challenges to democracy, uh, financial and economic volatility and geopolitical instability that we're really trying to think critically, but also creatively about how we want to how we want technology to play a role in either in sort of dealing with those problems and so that's kind of the main thrust of my work and how did you and Robert Mitchell come together to uh, write this book oh we were really well actually it was a really long time ago uh you know back in the day like almost internet number one <laughs> for those of who can remember like still dot-com ages um we uh we were part of i was a postdoc at duke back in 2006 7 
at the Franklin Humanities Institute. And we were one of the kind of first groups when these, when some of these universities were thinking, hey, you know, we really got to think about what the humanities have to say to this new, this new internet thing, this digital technology. Uh, suddenly the term digital was everywhere and people were really aware that computing was, you know, computing had moved from being something that was like at work or, you know, uh, big corporations used to something that was really, I mean, it already started in the 80s, but it was something that everybody was part of in this new networked mode of being, you know, the internet uh, had emerged into kind of public consciousness. And so we were part of a working group that was asking what, what a digital humanities might look like in terms of the new types of questions and new methods we need for that. And uh, that's how we met. And then we stayed in touch and it turned out um, that our interests converged some like, I don't know, <laughs> 15 years later uh, to put a book together. So it takes a while, you know, I think you have to be in conversation with people for a while before you write uh, a book with them, or maybe some people just do it, but I, I couldn't. So just to uh, situate the audience, uh, can you describe what you mean by smartness and also what you mean by smartness mandate? Yeah, thanks for that question. So, um, you know, who doesn't dream of owning a house that calls the doctor if something happens to you inside it or, um, uh, you know, being able to manage climate change for, as for city using data-driven analytics, uh, Basically, smartness for us is the assumption or the desire uh, to introduce computing and big data infrastructures and artificial intelligence into the management of everyday life. Uh, you know, most visibly, you know, we know everyone I'm sure has heard of smartphones and smart homes and smart TVs. And I don't know, we have smart like lots of stuff. Uh, but the book actually asks a more fundamental question, which is, so what is this smartness? Like what, you know, on one hand, we throw it around all the time. We kind of just assume it's sort of out there. You know, I don't think twice when I call my phone a smartphone, but uh, why was it labeled smart? What's the history of that? And um, why do we think everything needs to be smart? So the, the key term actually of the book might be the mandate. And, uh, and now we could think about it also in terms of artificial intelligence. But the assumption is that it's not just that, that things are smart because they use big data and analytics in order to personalize their services for us to uh, create new types of functionality, whether it's, you know, finding your way home using Google Maps or whether it's... Uh, you know, um, monitoring my heartbeat and or my diabetes, you know, my sugar levels, all all kind of things that today we have smart, smart instruments to do. But also the fact that we think that everything has to be smart. So the real question for this book emerged for me because I was working actually in design and architecture schools and every single student was into smart buildings. And, you know, it was, in, you know, if we were going to be sustainable, supposedly we had to use these technologies. It seemed unthinkable to uh, my students in design and architecture to just open a window. I think we need an automated building management system to open the window. Like, and you kind of think about it for a minute and, and you start to ask, that's, that's really interesting. Why do you think it's more environmentally friendly not to make people go over and open their windows than to, um, to have some complicated computer system kind of monitoring your air conditioning system, what kind of sets of assumptions are there around what uh, 
what computing can do to improve life. And in fact, it became even more urgent when you started looking at urban level uh, smart cities. So this project really started with work I was doing in South Korea on a, on a kind of prototype, a kind of experimental, what, what Cisco was calling a test bed actually, uh, for the future of urban life, uh, Songdo, South Korea, which was kind of a very large greenfield smart city. Greenfield is a city we build it's built out of scratch, uh, kind of just on a open plane there. Not that common maybe, uh, you know, in Europe, certainly not, but, um, you know, all over Asia, of course, these developments sort of spring up. And in this case, the idea was that it would be smart, which meant that it would have um, a lot of, of infrastructure like fiber optic capacity to introduce computing into the environment. So there were things like smart poles that would, you know, monitor traffic, uh, have CCTV, survey lots of stuff, do environmental quality management, all these things. And supposedly all this data was going to make the city imp like manage the, you know, everything from traffic to air quality to, you know, um, to get to throw to like perfect circular economy around the trash and recycling and all these things. And all of this was going to be um, dealt with through uh, artificial intelligence and big data um, computing. And one of the questions that, that came out um, in thinking about that city was the fact that it was constantly linked to this question of greenness so that the environment, so the idea was that if we're going to survive climate change, we need these type of cities. They're the only ones that can um, deal with the incredible rapid urbanization happening, especially in places like East Asia um, and South Asia, and that this was the only solution, not just for like making my life nicer, but literally for survival. And increasingly became really interested also at the relationship between smartness and crisis and catastrophe. So like how the demand for technological solutions was understood as not simply a choice, not something we can decide we wanna do, but something we had to do in order to survive. And with COVID, this became dramatic, you know, um, for systems from surveillance of the pandemic to um, sort of suddenly, uh, you know, whole school systems being given over to these private contracting or to Google or what have you to manage online education. And so suddenly it moved from, you know, something that people were experimenting with or thinking to being like, no, you know, the future of a society depends on actually these smart big data infrastructures and that any society that wants to be competitive has to have this sort of infrastructure. And, you know, anytime anyone says you have to do something as a critical scholar, you ought to be asking some questions. Uh, who wants that? For whom is this happening? Why is it happening? What political economy is going on around it? You know, really the basic and important questions. And of course, again, coming back to COVID and, and now the kind of geopolitical battles we're having over energy and over things like silicon chips where literally we're talking about the politics of this planet being reorganized and it's you know it's it's geographies around um supply chains and, and silicon chips around computing uh we really have to take pretty seriously this relationship between crisis and computing and the kind of modes of action, including political action it's enabling, as well as the kind of violence and inequity, you know, so COVID again, uh, obviously not all bodies were affected equally. So as we're, we're hearing this call for smartness, it's 
it's for whom and who becomes sacrificed in that that effort to become um, technically superior and what kind of societies are are developing around this idea. So yeah, can you can you that's talk the mandate part? Yeah, can you talk about some of the um, you know you mentioned before uh, the kind of the design and architecture uh, basis with which you're approaching this. Um, you know, some of the, the ways in which cities have been implementing this and, and what the kind of way in which under the smartness mandate citizens are thought about, uh, you know, is it like the global village, like that idea from the 90s, or is it something, something different? No, I mean, a really, really, so there's a couple central concepts to us in terms of trying to understand that relationship. I wouldn't say we have a final kind of answer in the sense of right now smartness we also don't hate smartness so one of the things is i'm not a technophobe i'm not no one's throwing out their cell phone anytime soon and it's not what we're suggesting uh what we're asking is what how people are imagining smartness differently so there's different modes of um citizenship, belonging, collectivity that are emerging around obviously smart and network technologies. But to back up and answer your first your first question, sort of what kind of forms, you know, one of the things um, that is very, very clear to us is that smartness is fundamentally linked to um, histories of neoliberal economic thinking, uh, at least in the US, uh, obviously we didn't, you know, I'm not a China scholar. So I, while I did work in East Asia and Korea, it's a bit different. Um, so in our, you know, in our account, uh, if there's a kind of mode of agency that's being imagined through smartness, it's fundamentally one linked to um, a history of neoliberal um, economies uh, in the sense that, um, Fundamental to smartness is the idea of collective vision, uh, collective decision-making. And we kind of trace that history of the belief in collective decision-making to a very, very critical intersection between the neoliberal thinking of economists like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and the actual development of artificial intelligence, of, of, learning, like, uh, of learning technologies, uh, machine learning technologies like neural nets. And fundamentally, uh, the idea that emerged in the really right immediately after World War II, that um, individuals were subjective and uh, didn't have full information, in some sense that human beings weren't rational. We're really interested in the idea of humans as unreasonable, um, as, as, as making decisions on noise, as fundamentally flawed and incapable of objectivity these ideas were propagated really heavily by neoliberal economists like Hick, who began to envision the only thing that could make a decision and optimize the use of resources was the market. And it fundamentally only all these, so all of us are kind of just making our little decisions every day, but I don't really know everything that's happening in the world. I don't, I don't have full information about, um, about the 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 entire market and making a decision and only the market itself can do that and fundamentally those ideas of kind of distributed intelligence collective decision making and flawed judgment that um, are absolutely not 
a late 18th or 19th century ideal of like reason judgment uh, put forth by like, you know, ideas like by John Mills or, or any of the kind of people who were thinking about democracy, let's say at that time. And I'm, I'm not saying there weren't many problems with those ideas as well. We're just marking that these are really different ideas about what a human is, how they make decisions, and why we need to be networked together, that only network decision-making. That's kind of a profound idea, actually, to think that intelligence only happens at scale and not within any one of us. So um, these ideas had a, a, a close resonance also in um, emerging psychology, uh, particularly in the work of Donald Hebbs, who is also famous for having featured in the Shock Doctrine, incidentally, uh, by Naomi Klein, but who also came up with this idea of, of uh, neuroplastic um, uh, that cells or neurons that fire together, wire together. And the idea there was that and this also emerged again in the late 40s and early 50s as a result of um, he, he was working with people, you know, with soldiers, uh, former soldiers and, and others who had been disabled by the war in some way. So they, you know, maybe they had lost a limb or lost a sense due to shell shock, something like this. And they started to note that the brain was changing its capacities to, to moderate, to modulate with that. Um, and, you know, so that people would learn to, you know, use maybe their hearing rather than seeing if they were blind or, you know, that they would compensate in different ways. And he started to ask certain questions about how our brains programmable. And he came up with this theory that um, that brains can be retrained. And that's because we don't store everything in our heads that we've seen. So I don't have a uh, I haven't like every single human face is not stored in my head. Um, but rather, when I see something that looks like a face or what have you, a certain set of neurons fires together. And the more I see a certain set of stimuli, the more I see, the more likely I am to see uh, a particular person that I know. So, for example, a baby sees a cat. Babies don't know what cats are. You don't have to tell them what a cat is. But the more they see the cat, the more the more they recognize a cat. And so there's a statistically greater chance that this particular pattern of neurons is gonna fire. Now this seems absolutely unrelated to economics, but of course, in economics and psychology have long had a history where we're in kind of our models of what we think human intelligence and decision-making is kind of reflects and refracts to our model of uh, how markets and economic decision-making happens. So um, Hayek was very influenced by this idea and so it kind of reaffirmed his idea of, um, oh, maybe markets like brains kind of work in this networked principle that they make decisions collectively. And most importantly, they make decisions without, uh, for lack of a better term, I know this is quite complicated, but without having to represent or, and most importantly, without planning. So you don't tell a baby what a cat is. It just kind of learns what a cat is, right? And um, and that that kind of imagination that we might be able to train and to and that systems could learn without ever having to tell it to describe the world to them or to model it. Uh, this was a really really important idea for both economists and in psychology. And then uh, and then the third place this became really important was soon in the mid in the late in the mid 1950s there was a conference at Dartmouth 
um, where they first coined this term artificial intelligence. And one figure developing um, approaches to how machines might learn looked at both Hebb and looked at, looked at economists and psychologists, looked at Hebb and Hick and kind of developed this model of the neural net. And then that kind of went away for a few decades, but then it came back and it's come back really heavily. And the idea of the neural network and in machine learning is, is kind of the fantasy of being able to get machines to learn, even though of course we have supervised and unsupervised, and there's a whole lot of things that happen. So these are also imaginaries of what intelligence and learning might be. But fundamentally, machines might just be able to learn without us having to actually represent the world to them. They could just data-driven begin to do things like recognize faces, right? Just like babies recognize cats. And this principle sounds very interesting and very nice. And the reader might be wondering, why do we care? Um, but fundamentally, what you're getting is a fantasy of the self-organizing system that can operate without either representing the world to it or without planning. That is to say that systems could learn, they could adapt, they could change, just like we do as organisms in biology, without uh, the direction of, let's say, government or a directed policymaker. And this was a fundamental idea in economics, but then it's actually been incorporated in the most literal ways in our machine learning systems, this kind of dream. Now, of course, like I mentioned, there's supervised learning, there's, there's tons of other statistical and, and modes of machine learning we have to apply to make these models to work. This is a fantasy that, um, data-driven decision-making can just best use resources without seemingly any bias or any need to pre-organize the data or do anything like that. This is all a fantasy or an imaginary. I really want to accentuate that. But fundamentally, it shapes this dream of smartness, a form of kind of self-organizing, data-driven decision-making for which individuals are are part of it we're we're network we're fundamentally the vision of agency here is a vision of human beings whose main freedom is the freedom to enter markets whether of information sharing in the internet or whether that's market activity and that's the main and only role of uh, at first neoliberals of the state or any other organization is to make sure i can i can give up my data basically um, to, to put it plate bluntly. And this has sort of reconfigured our ideas um, that, you know, that, that we are not rational or reasonable. We're definitely not reasonable in any enlightenment sense of the way subjects. We're not citizens like we're emerged, may imagined in the 19th century. We are free uh, and that freedom is fundamentally structured by a freedom to, to participate um, in market activities. And that has greatly shaped, of course, uh, urban governments, for example, which, who are mostly at, who many times today, largely function as essentially shell contractors to a whole role of private organizations that then deploy smart um, technologies. But I do all want to say also, there's a kind of little silver lining on the cloud to this new corpo citizenship that we've produced through the dream of the self-organizing um, adaptive learning um, 
network. And that that is, which also, of course, goes with all the platforms we're on and, and the social network and stuff like that. So there's there's clear correspondences and places of intersection with platforms uh, and what we might call platform urbanism. Uh, but the silver lining is that, of course, uh, it's also reimagining uh, the type of freedom we might have through being in relationship with other people. So um, since collectivity is the only way to to uh, to learn and to advance and to act, we are also seeing, you know, whether it's new social movements, um, Black Lives Matter or, or movements against austerity or, you know, climate movements. We're seeing new forms of thinking about collectivity as a route to freedom and to agency and to becoming citizens as well. So that rather than being isolated individuals, the, the kind of positive side of this vision, if, if, we, if there's one, is that maybe uh, we can start talking about what types of economies and how we produce value and what we're actually um, being networked together to do uh, and perhaps it doesn't just need to be around financialization, but it could be around other things as well. So I don't, I don't know if that answers the question, but it fundamentally poses that smartness does pose a particular um, genealogy that we trace around reconfiguring human decision-making and to understanding the, a new relationship between collectivity, freedom, and the idea of intelligence and even more importantly, the ideas um, of evolution and change, like fundamentally machine learning, learning is the central question, question really in smartness. And that's uh, something that we're really focused on because it can be a site of both an you know, emancipatory and positive politics, but also training, learning, these can supervising, these things can be of course, very disciplinary and negative and surveillance te and propagandistic technologies. You, you claim that the uh, the key operation of smartness is derivation. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain this, uh, just to drill down more on this concept, this kind of yeah, general yeah. concept of smartness. Well, as I mentioned already, uh, you know, clearly economic thought plays a pretty big uh, role in this book, in this genealogy of smartness. And so uh, one of the interesting things that we first thought we were going to write about optimization, because every single engineer you talk to who does uh, smart things uh, or works on artificial intelligence tells you, well, what we do is we optimize. Like the main thing is that we take uh, existing processes in the world. Let's say you're making a car and we make it supposedly uh, more efficient depending on whatever criteria. Now, the interesting thing about histories of efficiency versus optimization is efficiency was clearly emerged as a dis discourse with the industrial, second industrial revolution in particular. And, the, and thermodynamics as a kind of idea in physics. And so it was very much organized around the idea of um, heat loss and energy. Uh, and so, you know, it was, it was kind of, it had a reference out in the real world that you would cut down on how much energy and materials and stuff you used for, an, for to make something or what have you. Now, optimization is interesting because you can optimize anything. I could uh, optimize the speed I'm talking right now. I could uh, optimize my hair color. I could optimize. And, and optimization is a self-referential process. 
it doesn't necessarily have to be about saving energy. I could optimize uh, how much energy I waste. Maybe uh, speaking of like cryptocurrencies or something, you know, like I can make more money by wasting more stuff uh, and I could optimize that. Uh, so it's a self-referential measure. But increasingly, we started to notice that optimization sort of withholds or hides its economic function. That really behind optimization is an even maybe more prevalent not logic, which we thought was true of platforms, but also finance, which was mainly derivation. And the term derivation we chose because we were looking at things like derivative uh, uh, options pricing equations, which are um, which were very critical to actually massively increasing the introduction of algorithms and computerized trading in, in financial markets. Um, and which were a particular way of measuring and, and dealing with and managing the future. And I do want to add, smartness is fundamentally always about managing the future, really, uh, through technology. And particularly, we were interested in how um, the derivative is sort of an or form or the ultimate model for how smart systems approach the future and create value and primarily about their tendency to continue to attempt to derive more and more value out of an asset, an existing asset. So classic examples of this that we kind of mentioned, um, although we do tend to focus on finance, which we think are, is understudied compared to Uber or Airbnb, but of course, Airbnb and Uber are classic cases of, you know, uh, derivative logic where supposedly there's all these extra apartments that are just lying around unused and will now find a way to monetize it through Airbnb or in Uber's case, you know, people just have cars. So we'll just, you know, and they're not using them all the time. Wouldn't this be great? We don't need to build any new infrastructure. Uh, now, of course, in Uber's case, that also came about, um, capturing a labor market, right? Like uh, there's this existing unused extra labor that might charge too much. And so now we're gonna, we're gonna kind of change the laws and manage to get people to, to work, existing bodies, existing people. The idea is that, 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 that sounds terrible. I mean, from their logic, that the infrastructures and the people um, that make the system work already exist. They don't have to be made or trained or created by Uber. They're already there. They're just uh, value is being taken from them. And endless, you know, er and just about every platform you can think of attempts to essentially be a kind of um, to do this right to their users to somehow um, get derive a little extra value um, from what is supposedly an existing practice or infrastructure. You know, you talk to your friends, so we're, we're going to just, um, you know, let you talk to our friends on your platform. You're doing that anyway. Uh, and we're going to add all these additional services. So they're going to be kind of an intermediary uh, between people doing things that they were already doing anyway, but now ever better. And they're going to find more and more ways to extract new types of value from that mediation. Uh, and in the city, that's the same thing. You know, 
platform urbanism is kind of usually thought of the city is actually an intermediary between its citizens and services. Like the city isn't really imagined, even though we do live there and people actually have to live in houses and drink water and like turn on the lights and eat and things like that. Um, increasingly the way, you know, uh, if you look at smart city designs, they're kind of they envision the city as this platform that's main function is putting you in touch with the services, medical, consumer, transport, et cetera, that you need, um, rather than itself providing them. Uh, even, um, in, even corporations like Amazon, for example, is just out in the Ruhr Valley last week looking at uh, Amazon has built, has entered very heavily into um, Germany over the last few years, its procurement and um uh, and distribution centers. And Amazon doesn't build a single warehouse. It doesn't own a single truck. It's an intermediary and offers software solutions to people who do. And that for us is a fundamentally derivative action. So um, the actions of these smart systems reflects and refracts what we think in financial markets and, you know, uh, is one of the biggest, you know, derivative Markets are, of course, about something like 25 times the size of the GDP or GNP of the world today. And of course, some economists will say, well, but that's because most of them are fiction. They're like the, the U.S. debt, you know. But in order to build any road, in order to have, you know, Joe Biden's infrastructure plan, in order to do any, in order to build a belt road, all China, the U.S., everyone is heavily leveraged and heavily engaged in derivatives markets. And so we actually took those markets and the technologies they use to develop, to try to produce value out of underlying assets as a kind of metaphor, but also um, actual practice by which to be thinking about smartness more broadly. So it's a fundamental effort to get at the political economy of smartness. And we think that versus optimization, that sounds kind of nice, derivation kind of gets to this heart of you know, kind of ongoing extracting value from the relationships between people and things and um, be and the kind of both effort to, and also the lack and the, also the questions of responsibility. You know, if you're never building anything and you're never technically directly, you're always subcontracting, it poses all sorts of new kind of questions around responsibility, ethics, um, and uh, and other things. How do you see the smartness mandate intersecting with issues around surveillance and privacy? That's of course the, the question everybody asks and the number one, we didn't actually deal that heavily uh, with surveillance because basically it is so heavily covered and it's the obvious first thing. Clearly, smartness takes on like Orwellian, possibly Orwellian implications concerning surveillance and privacy. Obviously, your cell phone gives an unbelievable amount of information. We've had so much, you know, information and so much uh, coverage of uh, how, you know, human rights activists have their phones, you know, broken into by like Pegasus programs and how these systems, of course, enable incredible amounts of tracking and surveillance of populations. And I, but 
I also want to say that we were writing this in the midst of COVID, and that kind of also demonstrates the positive parts of surveillance, right? Like, if you want a good public health system, if you want to actually manage, for example, climactic change, uh, the climate crisis and, and deal with it um, in not just urban, but just in general, these all mandate large, big data sets, uh, uh, vast um, infrastructures for, for information gathering and surveillance. So we are deeply conscious of the kind of pros and cons of the fact that smartness is fundamentally about integrating and packaging and platformizing um, information and, 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 uh, and also, you know, information about populations. So I do want to accentuate like a central term in our book is the term population. And that can be kind of a um, pretty scary word. It sounds sort of very, not just erudite, but either like, again, Orwellian or eugenic. And indeed it is and can be. But it's also really important to understand that uh, and of course, I think most people know this, all forms of machine learning happening today do not happen just on one person. They're not individual models of cognition, reason, or action. Computers learn from large large groups of people and things in the world. It doesn't have to be people. It could be animals. It could be, um, you know, molecules. But it fundamentally from populations. And so um, the the change of trying to think everything in terms of the population unit instead of the individual is a big kind of uh, provocation of this book because fundamentally, even though I know there's been endless critique of liberal individualism forever uh, in, in an excellent critique in academia, we still haven't, it, you know, we still don't really have a, a politics in the sense of a media politics or, or what um, a regular politician will get up and say that's not grounded in the you or the individual, right? Um, people don't go around and say you is like always talking about groups. They talk about how this is going to affect you as a individual or your family or what have you. So um, living in a world that's fundamentally being uh, very often managed by systems that, 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 that operate on, that see the world through um, populations of data is something, you know, that we're still figuring out in ethical data politics and what, what sort of concepts uh, will, will work for us. So, um, so I guess that's the surveillance answer. It's like, yeah, there's really bad stuff. And like I said, I, uh, we have a little bit of East Asia, but, you know, obviously, um, if I, if I did start looking at places like China where there's really, really developed smart city infrastructures around um, tracking and social organization um, or even uh, in the U.S., I mean, the border, you know, we haven't, uh, we talk a little bit about smart borders. Uh, right now, my research group deals a lot with smart borders, but I mean, there's very intensive surveillance of particular populations that's quite um regular and and invasive and extremely of course gendered and racialized and sexed oh. um i was wondering you know you you have throughout the book different case studies uh and i was wondering if you you could uh, share some of them um you know if, if there's a particular case study that you found 
uh, most interesting just to sort of help illustrate some of the points uh, that you've been making about smartness? Yeah, well, um, we have we have a couple case studies and there's um, there's uh, four that really stand out for me. So we have a lot just to give readers a background that are mainly there to kind of bring our conceptual, since we're a historian and a literary and a literary theorist and media theorist, you know, there's a lot that's like conceptual, but we also really, really wanted the book to be grounded in stuff happening, you know, not just uh, my ideas about smartness, uh, but also like what's happening in the world. And we fundamentally were really interested in the intersection between computing um, populations in the environment and how computing intersects with our ideas of how large systems are going to change and adapt to very adverse conditions, particularly around uh, climate change, but also economic. And the case studies that we looked at, but also we were very concerned with both the positives of smartness that we've already kind of discussed. You know, it's it's nice to have uh, better public health. It's, you know, obviously um, not so nice to have immigrants uh, you know, persecuted at borders or people's human rights violently oppressed uh, or people being police surveyed. Um, and so we wanted kind of an examination of both the pros and the cons through examining real situations and often situations where we don't think about it. So we've talked a lot about cities, but um, fundamentally in urban planning today, we talk about planetary urbanization is one term that comes up. And we also talk about something called the hinterlands, which is the way that um, areas that we call rural or natural are fundamentally industrialized and highly technical as well. So some of the case studies that we discussed were, for example, um, an early study that made me think about the derivatives actually, and also resilience, uh, which is another term that figures really prominently in this book, um, was uh, work I had done in Kolkata uh, kind of on uh, Indian smart city developments. Uh, India had a very ambitious kind of hundred like smart city program set up by the Modi government. And their effort was to sort of encourage these cities, particularly sort of greenfield development within existing Indian cities to develop high-tech infrastructures that they thought, uh, you know, that the government kind of saw as, as, as kind of propelling India into the lead and, and really strengthening their already quite strong IT sector. Uh, and many, many cities attempted to uh, get, become part of these projects because they had, of course, generous government funding and so on and so forth. And Kolkata, of course, is is, notor is known, um, West Bengal as being, you know, amongst the most impoverished and relatively un, kind of unhooked into um, the IT the fantasized IT revolution um, that has been impacting India. And certain areas or zones of that city uh, began kind of preparing themselves, so to speak, for application for smart cities. They, at the time, they hadn't really gotten it uh, yet, but now they have. And this one particular area, Rajarat District 5, um, is also part of the East Kolkata wetlands. And the East Kolkata wetlands are a very important ecosystem that is the only um, is, is the only sewage system actually for the city. The city of 
of vast numbers and many millions of people. I don't know what the last number is, but it's somewhere between, you know, 13 and 17 million, I believe. Um, so this is the only basically sewage system for the city. It's it's a it's um it's a series of wetlands that essentially filter the water. This was kind of developed um, from the 70s and 80s in development programs. They realized they could use wetlands to um to manage these environmental things. And it's also, of course, a defense for a city that's incredibly at risk for um, uh, sea level rise due to the climate crisis. And the sad thing here is that in this case, the discourse of smartness was essentially a cover for real estate. And this isn't a very unusual thing where in the name of calling it a smart city or a future smart city, um, the area is rezoned. Some 30,000 people were dispossessed since most people kind of squat on this land and they were cleared out to build fancy office towers, including a Trump kind of hotel. And that story was sort of the extreme negatives. It wasn't even like a real smart, it's how the imaginary of the smart city hooks itself into certain forms of, of um, development and, and capitalism, frankly, that is extremely violent, dispossessive, and and this is not infrequent in the global, you know, around the world, uh, that you'll see uh, smart cities developments also hooked into kind of luxury development and disp dispossessing people and gentrifying the areas of the cities that they've been in before. And that's one kind of that's the negative situation has been not only the city, the smart city as a vehicle for dispossession, but the smart city as also a kind of really kind of dark vision of a Noah's Ark. And, and uh, so what happened in Kolkata is kind of reflected in a very fancy way in the Sangos of South Korea or the or, Hudson, or something closer to home, perhaps, since you're in Brooklyn, Hudson Yards is the vision of a smart city that's essentially built for only, you know, is it built to keep people who can own those apartments that I think range to $50 million or something uh, um, alive. It's already raised. It's, 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 a, it's, it's the vision of an, of an architecture for a city that may not have sufficient coastal defenses because it's already raised up um, a couple hundred meters um, from in order to deal with the kind of um, sea level issues and hurricane uh, um, exposures. It's got everything perfectly green, rainwater capture, perfect smart integration. So Hudson Yards is of course, co-developed the sidewalk of Google. So it's got all this perfect stuff. And it's basically the vision of a kind of compound quarantined fortress city in another city that is already prepared to save. So it's kind of got its, um, it's got this kind of negative Noah's Ark kind of sensibility to it where uh, that I've called the preemptive or apocalyptic hopefulness where sort of people are bankrolling real estate in preparation for the negative. And of course, it doesn't feel that way. You know, that's not how Hudson Yards has been marketed as sort of a like the rich people will survive in this fancy towers while the rest of you drown. But um, that's sort of what's happening. So those are the kind of stories about the like less than happy part of smartness. But then there's also really positive parts of um, smartness. And we were really interested in things like um, Deborah Cohen's idea of elementary, alimentary, like as in how I eat and drink infrastructures that are more metabolic, 
and lively. Uh, and in that case, we looked at indigenous energy sovereignty projects um, produced by the Navajo nations and the American Southwest. They were also using smart technologies to develop kind of non-carbon based kind of, you know, post oil futures. And those were the kind of positive places where you can see, you know, um, smart technologies and the the incredible ability for these technologies to decentralize grids and do things like that, that was really great. We also were really interested in the way that smartness could be taken in totally radically different ways. So we looked at Susan Simmer's work on smart forests and the way that we've come to understand trees as kind of talking to each other, if you will, or communicating through mycorrhizal networks that share information about the status of the forest, the well-being of the trees, and are fundamental to new ideas about how we're going to manage environments and ecologies in more diverse and healthy ways. So um, we were, you know, those kind of uh, projects, including, and also look examining things like the use of wetlands, all of this we also included in Smartness. We wanted people to understand Smartness isn't just about a technology. It's about what we were calling an epistemology. It's a way to see the world and think about it. And so it opens to new relations also to the environment and to each other. So we're really interested in those movements. We're also in in uh, kind of science and uh, indigenous sovereignty. And also we were looking at things like Black Lives Matter and, and collective movements that have fundamentally appropriated and used a lot of the language um, of collective decision-making and activism in, in different ways. And also um, kind of hacked, if we will, the language of neoliberalism to new ends. So we're really uh, fundamentally interested in how smartness both makes us more related because we're always um, in some sense communicating with each other, more maybe conscious of that relationality, but also of course has these negative surveillance and extractive capacities. And so we were really interested in interrogating both these possibilities and urging us to imagine the, the kind of non-extractive and potentially emancipatory sides of smartness and, the, and learning over the um, negative and extractive and derivative ones. Uh, the end of the book features a coda uh, where, where you you advocate for, uh, you know, sort of a shift away from some from the smartness mandate towards what you call the biopolitical learning consensus. So I was wondering if you could just uh, uh, help, you know, finish it off uh, by telling us a little about, about this idea. Yeah, well, um, as I spoke to Rob, we're we're painfully aware. Maybe if we got to rewrite it, we'd come up with a catchier term. We know that biopolitical learning consensus does not sound very catchy. It's not like smartness. I don't. I don't my my biopolitically consensus phone isn't going to take us very far. But we use that phrase um, to hold on to what we found helpful about smartness uh, while moving away from what we saw as its negative aspects. And to start, we found the word learning much more useful than smartness because learning and more specifically computer mediated learning is what smartness is all about. And that when we start thinking about learning, of course, um, it sort of opens up a whole question about education, pedagogy and democracy, actually. It allows us to begin to think about um, the way we change and that we can change the pedagogies, if we will, of how we train both maybe machines and people uh, to be more uh, conscious and to be thinking 
um, more critically, both about how we change, but also to reintroduce the, the critical place, of course, of the humanities, since we're humanities scholars, but also of education in, into how we're thinking about smartness and as a potentially really um, positive thing that, you know, in that all systems have to learn, we have choice. We have choice about what kind of data we give systems. We have choice about how we're gonna organize that learning. And we have choice about um, what we want systems to learn and to what ends. Um, it reminds us that things are constantly changing and adapting and that this isn't a system that just has to repeat itself all the time. And of course, it also heralds to this much greater a uh, longer tradition of trying to think about learning as a central aspect to democracy that we don't really develop in this book, but it's something that I'm currently working on in my current book. And for me, as a as mostly a post-World War II, you know, it really brought back uh, these, these critical battles in the civil rights movement towards kind of um, racial integration in schools and, and things like that. Um, and as well as kind of critiquing the way smartness can take over education in our present. So we were hoping that um, biopolitical learning consensus also would open to the biopolitical, which is that there's also a positivity to bio. Biopolitics sounds like a pretty ugly word. And very often with eugenics, genocidal projects, racism, it is a pretty ugly word. But it is also, um, at least as coming from Foucault, it could be a positive thing as well, right? Um, and again, coming back to nice public health interventions that keep people healthy and well, ideas of, for example, um, changing our ideas about the normal body, uh, changing ideas about gender, sex, uh, abilities, capacities, all these things are also uh, potentially a positive biopolitical idea. And so part of our desire was to also say, not only do we want to take up learning, but we really want to take up, you know, what could be positive about the fact that we're doing this in collectivities or in groups or in populations. And how do we fundamentally take our condition right now where we're facing both this intense climate crisis as well as um, a lot of geopolitical violence and war, um, in some way where we actually contend with the fact that um, bodies and violence are, are part of these systems and we need to find a positive politics around, um, around the management of life because that's really what's at stake in this book is how are we managing life and the future of it through technology. And that's um, really our fundamental question and um, our fundamental concern and we want to change how we how we're doing that, but we fundamentally know that it's not just a neat technology is never separate from us and it's never separate from our biologies. Um, and that fundamentally we are trying to think about the future of, of life here, of habitat, of subjectivity, but also the types of life um, and the management of life at different scales uh, in the future. So, um, you know, cause smart technologies are everything from nanotech to, um, geoengineering. And so we're really trying to think really aggressively about what it means to be able to manipulate life at those levels through computing and how that might be done in a more productive or positive way. And that's why we really stuck to biopolitics, but we really also want to emphasize this question of learning that things change and their relations change and that there's a, there's a politics and also a, a kind of progressive democratic politics behind the question of pedagogy and learning.
Well, Ward, thank you so much. Uh, the book is uh, The Smartness Mandate from MIT Press. Um, uh, check it out in the, uh, in the show notes. I'll, I'll link to it there. Uh, thank you.